page fright is recorded on the traditional unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Hello, and welcome back to Page Fright. My name is Andrew French. I'm on Twitter at the Andrew French, and this, of course, is the only literary podcast in the world that I host. And we're back again with another great episode with another great guest. But before we jump in, I actually have some housekeeping to do this week. So um, we've been doing episodes every two weeks for, well, since pretty much the coronavirus started. Um, but I will not be doing another episode for four weeks after the one you're currently listening to. Um, The reason being, well, there's kind of two reasons. Number one, um, not a lot of new books out, um, and it's tough to find people to talk to right now. Um, But the second one, and the bigger one, um, because I could talk to anybody about books anytime, um, the bigger one is that I'm trying to wrap up my master's thesis in the next couple months. Um, If you've been listening to the show for a while, you'll know that I've been working on this degree for a while, and um it's it's been a long journey so i'm i'm trying to take some time to really buckle down and focus and get this done um by the end of august so that being said we'll be back september 2nd um the first wednesday of the month so we'll be back with another great episode with another great author who i haven't lined up yet but i'm sure will be fantastic um that being said it is time to talk about today's guest and today's episode and i had a lot of fun chatting with today's guest who you can tell from the title of this episode was Andy Verboom. Um, Now, we talk about this a little bit in the episode, but Andy is a poet I've looked up to since pretty much I started writing poetry, which is kind of crazy uh, for me to be able to come kind of full circle and interview him now about his latest chapbook, DBL, which we'll talk about in a sec. Um, You know, it it felt really cool for me to reunite a little bit with Andy and talk to him. Um, We didn't have a ton of contact in the past couple of years where I've been, you know, trying to write stuff and focus on my degrees and, and, and all of these things. But um, basically, I took a poetry course when I was at Western in London, Ontario, uh, with Andy, who was the TA of the course. Um, so we have that connection from a while ago. And I've kind of been following his stuff because that course was one of the things that made me switch from going into business school to focusing full time on English. Um, and basically ended up with me writing poetry and, and doing what you're listening to right now. So talking to Andy was really cool for me because I kind of got to reflect a little bit on all of the distance that I've gone since, um, you know, he and I would have first met, or even if we didn't really meet, it was a big class, uh, but the first time he saw my name on a paper. Um, so things have really changed, and it's, it's just really nice to be able to sit down and talk to Andy, whose poetry, by the way, I really do admire. Um, we talk about how his style differs a little bit in this episode from kind of a lot of the people who I've had on the show, and I think that's very, very cool and refreshing. Um, I'm talking all about Andy, and I'm talking all about myself. Um, I may as well tell you who he is. So Andy Verboom is from sub-rural Nova Scotia and lives in Halifax. He's the publisher of Insomniac Press and Collusion Books and the co-founder of Long Con Magazine. His poetry has won Frog Hollow's Chapbook Contest and Descant's Winston Collins Prize, been shortlisted for CV2's Young Buck Prize and ARC's Poem of the Year, and appeared in Prism, The Puritan, Vallum, and Elsewhere. 
DBL is out now with Knife Fork Book. Uh, it came out this year in 2020, and it is Andy's sixth, count them, six. He has six chapbooks out, folks. It is his sixth chapbook. Um, we talk about some of the other ones that, that he's put out, too. I think we talked about Full Mondo Greens in this, but um, I definitely talked to him about Floor Games, um, which is out with 845 Press a while ago, um, who I'm now doing a chapbook with. Um, so lots of connections here, but uh, I won't preface it too much more. I know I'm taking up a lot of time at the top of the episode, but we talked about a week or two ago, and it was a lot of fun, so I'm just kind of talking on and on about it. Um, so without further ado, <laughs> I'll shut up and we can jump into the interview. Here I am chatting with Andy Verboom. I am chatting virtually again today, across the country again, uh, with Andy Verboom. Andy, how's it going? It is, it is going swell. The world's just such a beautiful place right now. You know, I that's a pretty hot take right now, uh, <laughs> but I I'm glad you're I'm glad you're feeling positive. Um, we're chatting late in the evening for you. Um, it's it's a perfect time for me. I just got off work. It's like six o'clock, um, but in Halifax, of course, that is ten p.m. Um, so you're staying up late to talk books, and I love it. Um, is is ten p.m. late for you? It is for me. I'm a bit of an old man, even though I'm very far from being an old man. Uh, but I understand that I'm like in a huge minority by calling 10 p.m. late. I probably just outed myself to a bunch of people in a way I shouldn't have. No, it's cool. Um, since the pandemic has started, my my sleep schedule has gone completely haywire. I, I like pass out. I do actually pass out at 10 p.m. and I'm awake at like 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> oh, God. And, oh, and that's my life now. <laughs> um, Andy, you've written a ton of chapbooks, um, and I'm I'm pretty confident in calling it a ton. I don't know the exact number. What is the exact number? You've got to know it. Uh, yeah, no, it's so many. I don't know. It's uh, it's six, which I thought was a ton, but then uh, Conor Clayton has six and two albums. Ugh, Conor. Yeah. So I guess. <laughs> Yeah, I just had Kanye on a couple weeks ago and uh, and was talking about that with her too. Um, how many chapters? Oh, I know. Kind of, yeah. I listened to it. I'm a, I'm a fan. Oh, I'm am so your, glad. Like, am I your first fan who is also a guest? You're definitely one of the first. Um, okay, I'll take I'm trying that. to recall. I think I, I've always been amazed when I tell somebody like, oh, you know, I turn my question or your question around on you at the end of the episode and they'll be like, oh yeah, I know I listened to it before. That always blows my mind. So uh, it's, <laughs> it's cool to hear that people actually listen to this because it's, you know, you never meet the people that listen. So it's kind of cool. Um, not, to, not to blow smoke, but you do, you do good work. It's a very enjoyable podcast to listen to. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. Um, but we're not talking about me. We're talking about you and your work today. Uh, and so for people who are unfamiliar, um, tends to be the best way to do it. Would you be able to read us something to kick the episode off? Yes. <clears throat> now, I, you're always so um, pleased and delighted when someone reads a poem that you had picked as one of your favorites from their okay. collection. Yeah. So do you want to pick something from DBL and I'll read it? I, I would be honored. Um, let me take a look here. Um, 
The opening poem actually was probably the one that stuck with me the most. Um, if you could read Fall of the Double-Headed Dildo. Okay, I can do that. Fall of the Double-Headed Dildo. Blue streak mid-street. A dildo lies unburied by leaves, brochures, or wrappers, agitprop. When you consider light, a cattle prod seems preferable to panning commentary for glints of dirt or strangling the canary in hopes that no one else observed that throbbing vein of silicone. Picture it, yachting the air, four cheeks to wind, a glistening, wary young middleman circumflexing atop the longish line of toy work and of tool play, of careful washing, padding dry with two-ply and storage, bearing this to belly flop on pavement. Having leapt from transport's coupley trajectory, blue chain gang grasps 12 limply fraternal rubber balls into one thought. You'll all get shot. Each ball beside its rubbery compatriots' plastic views on highway robbery. If goddesses who fed their husbands' cocks to catfish know what this implies of merry sex, I don't. Maybe it's the reason dropping dildos out car windows without coffins is such a craze. Though vehicles may vary, there's always something road dead, getting carried away with leopard crawling toward the curb, erecting, jogging at us. Have you heard birds flap at mirrors? Thighs, but literary? Awesome. Thank you so much for reading that. Um, this was one of my favorite poems from the little chat book. So the chat book for people who uh, don't know, because I don't think I've said it yet, is called DBL. It's out now with Knife Fork Book. Um, and I, I really enjoyed it. I've, I've followed your poetry for a little bit. Um, and oh. I, yeah, no, I have. I think for like a decent amount. So I don't know how much of the story uh, you know behind my like dive into poetry. Um but so for people listening, Andy was my TA at Western um, during a time when I was still planning on going to business school um, <laughs> and took a poetry <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad you, you made that left turn. Yeah, and a huge influence was that course that I took. It was my first time taking poetry in any um, sort of significant capacity, and it blew me away. I had so much fun. Um, and so I think that was a big influence. And then knowing that there was a person in the class who wrote poetry being you, um, and was actually, you know, doing this actively made it seem pretty cool to me. So I started doing it. Uh, and now <laughs> oh, we no. are. Oh no. What have I done? Um, which, <laughs> which course is that? Was that the, uh, was that like the leadership course or was that the course with, um, Alan Perot. It was the course with Alan Perot. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that was a lot of fun for me. Um, we actually, last episode was with Anique McCaskill. And mm -hmm. um, Anique picked a poem randomly from the poem roulette. And it was um, the E.E. E. Cummings poem we did in that class. And I mentioned, you know, this is one of the poems that made yeah. me kind of like shift away from business school because it 
hearing, you know, this kind of reading of this poem and how you could pick so much meaning out of something that made no sense to me at the first glance um, just blew my mind. So, yes, I've been following your poetry for a while um, because, you know, you were one of the first people I saw who was writing poems and still alive because, you know, it was a university <laughs> course. A lot of those people aren't exactly kicking around anymore. So, um, yeah. yeah. Well, <clears throat> how alive I am is up for debate, I think. <laughs> Especially right now. Yeah, this is a difficult yeah. time to be alive. <laughs> but yeah, no, I've been following your, your work for a while. And um, the chat books that I have, I the only two I have on me right now, uh, because I moved back to Vancouver after living at Western, are Floor Games and BBL. Um, and they are immensely different projects. And I'm very excited today to talk a little bit about kind of the chat book as a medium, um, because I sure. find that your your projects they really vary from chapbook to chapbook um, in a way that is so cool to me. Yeah, um, and in a way that makes it uh, nearly impossible to put them into a collection together. I've, I've kind of, uh, I've screwed myself there uh, when it comes to a debut full length by um, very deliberately creating chapbook length projects or, or projects that could be longer than a chapbook, but really, um, only sustain my interest for that length. And so I have to assume could not sustain a reader's interest for, for longer than a chapbook. Yeah. And it's actually funny. I assumed that, um, I didn't actually have you in mind as a guest yet when I was talking to Anique, um, a couple of weeks ago, but I have her question for you. And I think now it's probably a good time to ask it. Um, oh, yeah. because I, I, I'm pretty sure I know the answer. Um, so she's wondering, all things being equal, so forget money, what would be your ideal form to publish in? And of course, I imagine it would be the chapbook, at least so far. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this kind of like difference in form between a chapbook and a full-length collection um, and, and kind of, you know, what these differences are. Yeah. You know, I would love to talk about that, but I, you know, despite having a few chapbooks under my belt, I don't feel like any sort of expert on the form. Um, for me, it's a matter of duration. Um, and I, I think, as I mentioned before, just ability to sustain, um, to hold the whole project in mind. Uh, that's something that a chapbook can, can do, does, um, whether intentionally or not, uh, that simply can't be done um, in a full-length collection, setting aside things like long poems, which I still think, you know, if you've got a, a single poem sustained over 60 or 80 or 100 pages, there's no way to keep all of that in mind. But I think with the chapbook length of, you know, 40 pages or fewer, um, it's a complete object. Mm. So it can have one arc. Um, it's, you know, it's a, it's a film rather than a television series. Interesting. I like that comparison, actually. I haven't heard that before. Um, that's kind of a neat way of looking at it. Um, and yeah, so you, I mean, you, I think you're being quite humble by saying you, or maybe not humble, but um, it, it seems different to me because you're saying you don't feel like an expert on chapbooks. Um, to me, I mean, you've published a lot of chapbooks um, yourself. You're also now publishing other people's chapbooks, uh, mm -hmm. which is very cool um through collusion books which is awesome um some really cool projects coming out 
um, in the near future too from you that I'm hoping to chat a little bit about too. Um, and with yeah, some I, authors as well. I'm very excited about those projects. Um, please don't tell them that I said I'm not a chapbook expert. I'm relying on the impression that I am one uh, so that they will accept any of the edits I suggest for them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, collusion uh, collusion's a, a, a fun little thing that I decided, I decided a couple of weeks into the pandemic that um, it was time for this project to launch. I was intending on launching it this fall, um, the, the press itself. Um, and you know, it seemed like a, it seemed like a good time to encourage collaborative writing. So, um, Collusion only publishes collaborative poetry or collaborations between poets and, and other artists. Um, so far that has only been poets and visual artists. Um, but because, uh, I publish some chapbook length, um, digital projects as well, there's room for it to, you know, move beyond, um, beyond just, uh, static visual text or, um, visual art. Uh, so hopefully we can branch out into collaborations that are not, um, you know, that bring in music or that bring in film or, or, or something like that. Um, but yeah, I decided, uh, or I, I was getting the sense from, uh, from writers that they had some free time. Uh, and so I figured it was a good time to encourage or to, um, uh, encourage collaboration or provide a place for it to be published. Um, if it, if it was already, uh, in the works. And it seems like the timing was pretty good by accident. <laughs> yeah, no, it seems, I mean, it seems like a really good time for it. Um, you're also working with Long Con magazine. Um, mm -hmm. And they, there's also a lot of collaboration going on there in terms of sort of ekphrastic writing um, and all of that good stuff. So this seems like something you're very interested in is this idea of like multiple artists coming together to create one thing. Um, which is very, very cool to me. What, what kind of draws you to, I guess, ekphrastic work and collaborative writing? Um, it's a great question. I think what draws me as a writer to respond to other works of art is that I um, have gotten to the point in my writing journey where I understand that I won't have anything to say unless I kind of trap myself in a paper bag first. Like I need constraints um, in order to generate. So that constraint can come from form, um, but it can also come from requiring that I respond um, to, to another work of art. <clears throat> so for me, that type of response or, or, or fighting my way out of a paper bag is where I find what I want to say, or where I find something that I'm willing to to commit publicly to saying. I'm not really an expressive um, writer, so I need I need something else to respond to. I need someone else to start the conversation, um, and then I can then I can join in. Yeah, and I, I like this idea too, um, and I think it seems appropriate to 
um, to kind of what you do and, and from what I can tell who you are, to be looking at collaborative work and bringing artists together. Um, because uh, as far as I've known, as, as long as I've known you um, from afar, I guess, um, you've been very involved <laughs> in the writing community um, and, and kind of like interested in, in, in you know, working around words with people. Um, and so it, it's very cool to me that these projects that you're launching are centered around bringing people together and kind of enrich, enriching and building the writing community um, in various ways. Um, it's very cool. And uh, I'm a huge fan of it. There's no question there. Just a comment. Uh <laughs> no, I, I want to comment on that. I want to comment on that because um, that started in London, Ontario, of all places. Yeah. Oh, you and, you and Anika talked about London, how some people don't like it and some people are okay with it, I think. Was, those were the two options. Um, yeah. I, was, I was there for grad school um, and it was a perfect time to be there. Uh, there's a long history of art and outsider art, um, as well as establishment art in London, Ontario, that uh, that people don't really know about um, and the writing community there was kind of old but at the time I started moving away from the university campus and more into the community um, there was a big surge of young writers uh, especially young poets starting to connect with one another um, and I wouldn't call myself young at that time but uh, I benefited from this kind of perfect storm of the right people who wanted to connect with one another and create audiences around each other's work. Um, it was a really good time to be there. I don't think it's necessarily over, but um, but it was, yeah, it was a great time to be in London. And that's really what enabled me to um, it allowed me to walk away from London with the confidence that I can make community building projects happen. They don't always work, so I need to try like one or two things. And in the case of uh, Long Con and Collusion, um, fortunately or unfortunately, both of them worked. I was really only planning on one gaining any sort of traction and now I've got two to juggle. So that's, um, that's nice. But yeah, I owe a lot to um, the people I met in London, uh, Anique McCaskill included, um, and their their encouragement of, of me um, and of the projects I attempted there. So, yeah, I mean, I had a very, yeah, I, shout out to London. I had a very similar experience, um, except it was largely on campus, um, which might have just been the like typical university experience when, you know, you go to a college or a university um, or some form of academia and people are kind of like, Hey, outside of class, you should actually, you know, do the thing you were too scared to be nerdy about in high school. Um, and maybe that was it for me. I also remember going to a bunch of poetry readings in London. I'd never been to a poetry reading before for sure. Um, and, and just meeting writers. And I think that was a big thing for me was in London, I never really pursued writing in any serious way, but I did, build up the guts to talk to a writer after a reading here and there. And I think that was big for me um, is recognizing that, you know, the books you read, there's actual people that write them and they're usually pretty stoked to talk to you. 
And that was like a yeah. huge realization for me. I was going to say, you said that was big for you to talk to a writer after after they read or performed. I think it was probably big for the writer, too, <laughs> to have them <laughs> come up and actually talk. There's this weird, um, uh, like, gap. There's a weird gap between you as an audience member and the writer, but it's not, like, very infrequently does it have to do with any sort of pretension on the writer's part. It's just this weird sort of relic of, um, you know, like musical performance or something where you're not really supposed to interact with, with the performer. Um, and yeah, to all of you listening, generally, if you go up and, and say something complimentary to a writer, you're going to make their night because they, most of the time, most of the writers I know, they don't actually believe they did a good job. <laughs> reading myself included i am positive i bomb every single reading and sometimes i like virtually fugue state my way through a reading like i will get into the rhythm of delivering a couple of poems i have like jokes written on bookmarks hidden in my book so that it <laughs> seems like i'm speaking off the cuff but i am like so locked in um that when i finish i sit down and i'm like i just lost 20 minutes i assume <laughs> i did my reading but i really don't know so um I, i'm sure that's not a universal experience but um for people attending poetry readings this is never going to happen again but attending poetry <laughs> readings in person um it's really nice to hear from uh from someone in the audience that you did a good job even if you just say good job <laughs> You don't even need yeah. to be specific. Yeah, no, send Andy fan mail, I think is the takeaway here. Um... <laughs> no, oh, God, no. Do it for other people. I actually hate it because I don't, uh, I don't take praise very well. Okay, okay, sure. Uh, yeah, I think the sentiment remains though, right? I mean, writers are always thrilled when people interact with their work, um, especially in a complimentary mm. way. Even criticism can be exciting for writers. Um, and I mean, people who have told me, you know, oh, you know, you made a mistake here or there, or, uh, hey, what if you change these things in like a constructive way? That's always appreciated almost as much, if not more than um, like a compliment on a reading or something. Um, so yeah, the, the takeaway here is don't be afraid of a writer, just talk to them. Um, and that for me was terrifying when I started at university. So that's the big takeaway here. <laughs> um, should um, we make this into talking about negative reviews or is that, is that a can of worms? Negative reviews. We can talk about negative reviews for sure. I would love some negative reviews of my own work. Really? That's really all I have to say. I just want reviews. I will take negative reviews. I am like, I want that feedback. I want to know where I need to put my energies for the next time. Yeah, I just, I'm so desperate for reviews and I don't take praise well. So the perfect review for me is a negative review. Yeah, I've been reading, um, I don't know if you've read Shane Nielsen's Constructive Negativity. I've been reading that. Um, mm -hmm. and he's a big, big lover of the negative review. Um, and I have to say, like, it really took a long time, probably until I read this book for me to realize how helpful a negative review could be for somebody. 
because so much of, and I'm starting to do this now, I have a chapbook coming, so I'm actually working with an editor for the first time. But you you get to see like how much, like if you get accepted to be published somewhere, those people believe in your work. And so a lot of what you get will be positive feedback. Um, and so to mm-hmm. get the constructive stuff um, can actually be quite difficult, I think, um, depending on, you know, who you're working with or what's going on or how your work is positioned, like all of these different moving parts. But I think getting that constructive feedback can be difficult sometimes. Yeah, I agree. Um, for for most of my chapbooks, um, I have not, I didn't really get um, like the full editorial treatment. Um, this is not across the board. Uh, a, a few of them I had like really generative interactions with the editors. Um, but for most, it's like, I get it now, actually having having uh, three chapbooks coming out with collusion this fall, it would be great to just rubber stamp them and be like, these are amazing. But um, I, I need, I need to get in there. Um, when I was working with Karen Schindler of Baseline Press, she said to me that she really, like, she just needs to be able to believe in each of the poems. And I think, I think I need the same thing. So, um, yeah, which doesn't necessarily mean uh, a really, like, intensive editorial process for each of the poems in a chapbook, but does mean, you know, if a poem is working really well, um, maybe just chatting with the author or authors, um, in the case of the collusion chapbook, and just getting them to like, give you a five minute spiel about it. So you like understand where they're coming from for the poem uh, as well. So I think, uh, yeah, I can totally understand um, a chapbook publishing process where there's not, there isn't the time to do like a really deep dive into a project. And often the, the chapbooks are coming out or are like coming to the press um, sort of already crystallized um, because yeah. there's so much more, there's so much more wieldy than a, a full length collection. Um, they probably generally don't need as much work. There's not gonna be as much uh, fat to trim. So yeah, uh, that was a long way of saying, I can see it from both sides. Yeah, yeah. And it, that's always cool to hear when, I love hearing how people who are like started out as writers and transitioned into editors as most editors do, um, have kind of like come to see things from the other side. So it's really cool. Um, we're probably about halfway through, so I think it's about time we go to our random poem for the day. Okay, poets, I'm going to choose the poem roulette. No, no, I'm going to go to moods. Spin again, spin again. I don't know this poet. Do you know James Langer? I can't say I do. Now that I say the name of loud i feel like it's familiar okay this poem is called saint john's burns down for the umpteenth time it's a great title let's say the fix was in let's say history being human and thus short on ideas made change from an old bag of tricks say this was something reported as news on a day when your life came to no good the new homeless drifting from row houses along streets tamped down by the heedless 
and paved in afterthought. Out of hollows in the unkempt, out of Rabbit Town and Rollins Cross, they weep like mountain runoff in spring toward an intermittent stream in numbers not seen since an expiring Dominion's last riot when the representative nipped out the back and left masses in siege of their own blank stairs to empty their rage on the architecture. What a sentence. Sorry, that's not in there. It's just my commentary. Shop fronts and storm doors remade in an image of asymmetry we repeatedly inhabit. And though there's nowhere to really go, we have at least been here before. We stop in convenience stores for pull tabs, hole up in pubs on Water and George that close their doors in accordance with bylaws but keep serving to those lucky to be locked in. We watch our favorite teams on big LCDs as they succumb in sudden death where we learn to lose and be helpless about it. We sit, feed the machines, stay one feral glance from turning on ourselves. The draft taps, the underpasses through scaffolding, the acceptance of a certain steep downgrade in terrain all lead the way. Oh, I just scrolled down. This is a long poem. <laughs> you can cut it if you want. <clears throat> no, no, all lead the way to a zero hour we never set have somehow kept and from which we'll start again. The city comes to light, will reassemble behind us, finally up to code and arrayed with hand-painted mailboxes and an impoverished selection of heritage colors and hues of a terrifying nostalgia as we push into the projects of the West End, the spaces that await us to speak the words scripted. It makes little difference. The television bristles in its web of static and sunlight warms your unmade bed as if someone you loved deeply just left it. The way forward is more solitary but clearly defined. And our consent in its direction can't be otherwise. Well, that was a happy discovery. I really like that poem. Yeah, no, I did too. Were there any lines that stuck out to you? I mean, these are some gorgeously long sentences. Um, <laughs> um, uh, no. Uh, I mean, it's a good, it's a good opener. Let's say the fix was in. Let's say history, being human and thus short on ideas, made change from an old bag of tricks. It's really simple. It's this. Um, is really speaking to me of some Irish poetry. Um, oh. Like that just seems to be the, the mood, the atmosphere seems very Irish. Maybe it's just because the name James Langer sounds like it could be Irish. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> no, this is a good one. I really like how it does long sentences, but doesn't, um, doesn't switch metaphors too many times throughout their length. It's quite good. It's a very good accumulative poem. Ooh, I like that term, an accumulative poem. Mm -hmm. Like documentary poetry. Gotcha. Documentary poetry uh, is an interesting concept to build a project on. I like that idea. Mm -hmm. I am not, I can't write poems like this, which is why I like them so much. Um, <laughs> they're, they're uh, yeah, like you can tell that this poem is not written out of a place of constraint, as I said before, like that is all I do. Um, 
So this this poem, this type of poem to me is basically another art form or a different literary genre. I just can't, I can't write it. So um, I wish I could, but I appreciate it a lot. Hmm. I, I wanted to come back to this idea of constraint, actually, so I'm glad you brought it up. Um, sure. is, there, is there kind of like a balance that you want to try and strike with constraint for it to be kind of useful or inspirational as a writer? Like, I, I find sometimes when I try and write a certain form, it can be really productive, but then some other forms that have maybe more rules to them, um, or I guess to reuse the word constraints, um, it can be a little stifling sometimes. Do you, do you get this? I do get this for sure. Um, but, uh, I have the bad habit of just doubling down. Um, <laughs> if, if I find myself a bit stymied by a constraint, I just smash my head into it until it uh, finally gives way or my head gives way. I'm not actually sure which, um, <laughs> one thing I've found that can be helpful is if I'm stuck in, um, if I'm really, really stuck on a poem, generally I'll set it aside. Um, and then uh, when I do come back to it, I will cycle it through a different form. So um, let's say writing a sonnet, um, I get stuck. Uh, and then I say, rewrite it as a sestina or something. I mean, that seems extreme because the sestina is even more difficult, but um, I'll start rewriting it as a sestina, which requires that you uh, give up all of the darling phrases that you wanted um, to highlight in your in your sonnet and really just rescue or reclaim or rehabilitate the, the core images, um, some of the core like rhythms that you had developed port them into a different form, and then maybe it just ends up being a festina, but maybe you or I write a bunch of new material around those core ideas, and then I can um, translate it back into a sonnet. Hmm. I like this idea. Um, I'm wondering, though, how do you know you found the right form? Uh, hmm. Well... What, okay, what strikes me about that question is like the form is a glass, so the stuff you pour into it will will suit the form. Will conform to it, yeah. I don't know. I don't write outside of outside of constraint, so I don't <laughs> know that I, I generally what happens is I don't come to a form or come to a poem with a clear sense of what I want to say. Um, anytime I do, it's not a very pleasant writing process. And generally, it's a shitty poem. So uh, I find in the form what I want to say. Gotcha. So, yeah. So uh, when, say, I translate a failed sonnet into a festina, it's a new poem then, for sure. And then when I translate whatever material I've generated for that Sestina back to a sonnet, then um, it's a new poem again. But the the form, eh, I'm kind of I'm kind of cheating here and basically saying that, that form and content are the same thing. But in my writing practice, they absolutely are. The, the content doesn't exist without the um, 
without the constraints of the form. Interesting. I like this idea. I, I think we write very differently because form is not something I think a ton about, but I'm always kind mm -hmm. of intimidated by it. Um, and like trying to fit, let's, let's use the example of a sonnet, like writing a sonnet to me is something it's like the poem you read actually, because it's something when I read another person's sonnet, I am always, um, just in awe of the way that they work with, you know, stressed and unstressed syllables and all of these things that are trying to kind of work together. And you have to, you know, adhere to all of these guidelines, things that I never think about when I write. Um, and it always just blows me away. Um, so it's kind of in a way like like when you read that poem and we're saying, you know, uh, this is something completely different. It's a completely different genre to me. I think that might be why reading your work always strikes me so much. Um, and, and it's something that I'm always enjoying and kind of in awe of is because it's so foreign to me to be <laughs> writing in this way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I... Um... So I, I've had a, a full-length manuscript kicking around for a couple of years now. Um, <clears throat> and the rejections are generally on the positive side, but essentially like, uh, where's, where's the emotional core of these poems? And I'm like, I didn't know I needed one. Um, I, yeah, my engagement with poetry is not on trend. <laughs> I would say. Uh, so I'm really glad that, that you enjoy them. <laughs> but a lot of the time I get this like kind of, I get the impression that I'm coming across as a robot or an alien or an alien robot. Um, and that I'm not particularly interested in, in um, I don't set out with the intention of emotional evocation ever. Interesting. If I end up there, cool um but if i don't i'm not i'm not too bothered um by that which makes me uh yeah behind the times by by quite a bit or ahead of the time i don't i don't know i want to challenge that that statement that it's behind the times um i don't know it's definitely different than like the mainstream poetry that you'll get right now um but i think that's why it's important um, like it's important to have these different voices and poetry and different styles of writing um, and to be doing things in different and unique ways. Um, and I think that's maybe why I always find your work so refreshing when I pick up a new chapbook or, you know, find a new poem online somewhere or something um, is just because it is different than, you know, the things that I'm reading so regularly. Um, and if you haven't read Andy's work, I mean, this is, I guess, my call for you to go check it out. Um, because it is different than a lot of the people I've had on the show and a lot of the stuff that I read generally. Um, but I really enjoy it. And I think that's why it's important. I wouldn't say it's behind the times. Um, I don't know many people, you know, 20, 30 years ago who were writing a whole chat book about a double-ended dildo. Um, but, uh, there is stuff in there. There is other stuff in there. But, but this is, you know, this is one of the things that sticks with the reader when you pick this chat book up. Um, but I, I think, you know, I wouldn't say behind the times. I think it's, it's an important voice and it's an important way of writing um, to have varied voices because um, oftentimes it can be so easy to fall into kind of the trap of reading the same type of poem over and over and seeking out the same type of author. 
and so I think that's why I always appreciate your work and find it so refreshing. Well, genuinely, thank you. Um, that warms my cockles. And <laughs> let's say let's say I'm writing beside the times right sure. now. Definitely not on trend. It does drive me up the wall to to see people treat um, emotional evocation in poetry as an essential piece of the art form instead of just um, one color you can paint with. And I have no, it's like I've got, you know, like blue green color blindness or something and I don't care about green, like, or I don't even know I'm painting with it. And and to see people be like, every poem's gotta have green in it. I'm like, why? <laughs> what is, what is, I just think emotion is dangerous. I think tugging on heartstrings is can be useful, but it's like I think I'm more interested in in like rhetoric and imagism than in um, you know in I, I try to stay away from writing autobiographical poetry because I find myself incredibly boring, but I find uh, the work I can produce when I leave myself behind much more interesting. So. Yeah, this is my call to all of you out there. Stop acting like every poem has to have an emotional core. Sometimes people are emotionally stunted like me. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, we're very sadly coming towards the end of our interview. I'm wondering okay. if you have one more question, uh, a question that I can ask to my next episode's guest. Yes, um, and be honest with me if this, question has already been asked because I haven't uh, listened to the entire um, catalog of uh, okay. page rights. What poem do you wish you'd written? Ooh, you know what? This question is a variation on one that has been asked. I don't know okay. who asked it, but I love the question and I, I am always interested to ask this to people. So I want to run with it. Okay. Yeah. So what, what poem do you have wish written? That you wrote? Yeah. Sorry. What poem do you wish you'd written? And given your your skill set, you could conceivably have written. Like oh, at the see, peak of that. your powers. Yeah. Um so I now obviously I turn the question around on you. What poem do you wish you'd written and could have written? Joseph Brodsky's Epitaph for a Centaur. Ooh, that's an interesting I, pick. Um, I think I may have worked backwards from the answer to the question. <laughs> I was prepared okay. for that. Yeah, so what, what makes you say that? Um, so uh, Brodsky's later work, uh, like latest work, um, well, not latest, because he's dead, but um, like, the the very latest um bunch of brodsky's work uh just is the best use of rhyme in english i think i've ever seen um i know it's the best use of rhyme i've ever seen but i think i think that i could get epitaph for a centaur at the peak of my powers i could write could have written something like that and i'm assuming i'm not at the peak of my powers yet but uh <laughs> Yeah, just the kind of naive, naive approach to language, the um, 
to English, the treatment of it as a second language, because Brodsky um, was Russian, um, and so English was, you know, it's it's that the freshness of someone who, even though he had spoken and written in English for, for decades leading up uh, to writing that poem, he still had this naivety that was, uh, that I find really uh, refreshing and something that I want to get to uh, in my own writing often where I'm playing with blocks of sound um, and I don't really care if a particular rhyme is trite, um, if it's also clever. Hmm. I like this idea and it reminded me of a question that has been asked that I'm going to repurpose. Um, okay. Kevin Spence asked a while ago, um, if he was asking the next person if they'd ever incorporated words from another language into their work. Um, because you just mentioned, you know, this was this poet's second language or, or you know, an additional language. So um, is this something that you've, that you've played around with? Or uh, another part of his question that I liked was, do you have a favorite word in another language? Um, I, oh, I can't remember if it's in, I don't think it's in DBL, but I use pove instead of poor. So like poor in French, just for the rhyme. It like <laughs> doesn't serve the poem very well. I'm going to be honest. Um, I, I think it is in DBL. I shouldn't be saying that. Uh, Kirby's going to tell me. Um, yeah, I... Yeah, I'll use a word in another language um, if if it suits and if I think uh, if I think it's close enough to to most readers' lived experience. So English is just English does this anyway. Um, it's it's just a uh, I was gonna call it a sponge, but it's really more of a kleptomaniac, um, and you know that fits with its uh, imperial colonialist history, it just adopts words from other languages, often perverting them, uh, perverting their meaning quite a bit, but it suits English to, um, to just throw, not throw, but to use other languages. I mean, code switching is, I think, I don't know any other languages as well as English, but um, English is grammatical flexibility in my eyes makes it particularly suitable for for code switching so for those folks who are doing this who are um, moving between or among languages very deliberately for political uh, effect you know English is great for it for poets like me who occasionally just really need a good rhyme uh, you know I can dip into French because we're in Canada I've I've got Cadian heritage, I can sort of make it work. Um, that was the longest answer to that question. Yeah, I used <laughs> pove. I used pove once in a in a poem instead of poor. Yeah, no, I like that. Um, I was just interested in that because you do have a very wide vocabulary in your work. Uh, you use some really cool words. I'm always blown away by your word choice, uh, and so I figured I'd ask that. Um, maybe to prove my point, or maybe not, who knows, uh, we could get you to read one more poem, uh, to end our episode. I would love to. Um, I'm going to, 
I'm going to read Last Bastion, the uh, second last poem in the chapbook, because it's it's my current mood. <laughs> last Bastion. Liver and raisins hand. A hand refrying a time of austere delicacies. Coasts along a backrest. Vaguely checks the true of heirloom streetcar seats. Curls up. Faded. Passengers sway, stamp, sorrying in tune to sun's brake lights. Their sweat is dripping like a candle onto the West's still undraped nude model. Long, gravitied, drowsy notes. Poems are parsley on reflective stakes. Here's a bald man sitting in a two-door. One door winged tactless into bike lane, roasting his face above cigars signal fire, signing latest diagnosis to the FaceTime face perched mid-thigh, palm, thumb cut through it. Nonsense lucidity's not parsleyfied. It boards and joins the accordion host like any other, wedged between the booms and syncopations of our rib-caged freight. It's hard to picture our rations of brute mammalian sleep deplete. It's hard to drive our teeth to food that mirrors the gate. We wake, eat, leave, move back, please, repost. Streetcar, our needle, tow us below material. Deliver us to where we see who by sutured dawn has emptied out the most trash cans at the bureaucracy of trying. Very cool. Thank you so much for reading that. Um, of course, the chat book is DBL. The author is Andy Verboom. Uh, Andy, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, I was really, really excited to chat uh, and it was really nice to catch up a bit. Ditto, thank you so much for having me. So there you have it. That was me chatting with Andy Verboom about his newest chapbook, DBL. Um, also a bunch of other stuff too, but it was nice to, to chat about that project that I really enjoyed reading. Um, if you're interested in picking up a copy, there's a link down below to Knife Fork Book's website. Um, I wanted to read too, if you're not convinced on Andy's work yet. Kirby, who runs Knife Fork Book um, and, and was behind the publishing of DBL, um, says about this book, Verboom is a word fucker, and DBL finds him at his most playful. So check that out. I, I feel like you cannot get a better recommendation for a book than that. Uh, it's really cool. Anyway, um, there's a bunch of details down below, but if you want to listen to more Page Fright, super easy to do it. You can subscribe to this um, wherever you're listening, or uh, what you can also do, I mean, you should subscribe anyway, so you get that new episode when it comes out in four weeks, just a reminder. Um, or what you can do is go to anchor.fm slash page fright. There's a link down below as well. Um, and that will allow you to listen to all, I think we're at 39 episodes now of page fright, which is kind of crazy. Um, so you can listen to all of it in the backlog there. Um, if you want to leave a rating on the episode or the show, that would be super helpful. That allows other people to check out the work of the writers that I'm talking to. And of course, I am Andrew French. I am on Twitter at the Andrew French, and this right here has been Page Right.